Hello and welcome to an all new episode of Talking Fußball Extra, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. My name is Nick Biltargen and I'm delighted to welcome you to our podcast. Today we will be joined by football journalist and book author James Montieu, who is here to talk about his latest book, 1312 Among the Ultras, A Journey with the World's Most Extreme Fans. Welcome to the show, James. Thanks for having me on. Glad you're here. Um, so I've read three of your books so far and whenever I read your work, I'm always struck by the fact that you truly always seem to be a man on a mission and that you won't leave any stone unturned to find answers, even if that stone is on the most remote island in the world. So when you decide to write a book about ultra culture, did you have a clear-cut plan of where you wanted to look for the stories and what to write about? Or did your research sort of take you all around the world? It, it was kind of a bit of both. Like I knew from you know, covering football fan culture, football culture for, you know, I mean, good 15 years now. And, and ultras were kind of, have always been part of that. You know, they've always been there. I've always been adjacent to them, sometimes amongst them. And they've, so they've always been there. And I've, so, I've, so I'm well aware of the, the undercurrents and the secrecy and a lot of the time the friction that journalists have, the media especially have with ultras or ultras have with the media. So in terms of theory, kind of, I, I knew a little bit of where they came from, what were the key turning points. If I wanted to explain chronologically a kind of a story of how this, you know, incredibly popular, one of the biggest youth cultures in the world, kind of supporter culture ends up spreading around the world. I kind of had a chronological timeline that like you could start in Italy in 68. You can look to the spread into the Balkans um, the fall of communism, Eastern Europe, um, Germany, the beginning of the t uh, the beginning of the millennia, and then before that, looking how Argentine, Brazilian, and English fan culture kind of also played its influence there as well. So I knew that there was a, like a, a basic framework, and there were some countries which I knew that I had to cover. I mean, I had to go to Argentina, I had to go to Brazil, I had to go to Italy. Um, I lived in Serbia at the time, so you know, there's an incredible story about the former Yugoslavia and ultras there um so and most of the things that i, I could have put my mind and I, for instance and i end the book in indonesia and i knew that indonesia was something i really wanted because it's a very underreported supporter culture there but like crazy fans i mean crazy uh you know i mean they get themselves into a lot of trouble and i almost got myself into a lot of trouble there but there was also another aspect of it which was of course access and a lot of the times you know the door was shut Because, you know, they don't want journalists hanging around. It's, 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 a, it's an extremely secretive scene that doesn't like outsiders and certainly doesn't like kind of media. And so a lot of the times it was, you know, I put my myself out there and said, look, you know, I, I want to come. I didn't I didn't lie who I was. I didn't go kind of undercover. But I wanted to, to, to let them know, look, I'm coming. You know, I, I thought I built up enough kind of goodwill with a lot of people in the scene And a lot of with my reporting as well, and the kind of kind of books that I read that I wasn't quite mainstream because I've always been freelance, even though I've written for some quite well known names. I've always been quite an independent writer, so it was it was also down to who would let me come. I mean, there's there's a big you know I wish that I could have had more access to the Russian scene, to the Polish scene, there were two really big scenes that I wanted to get get access to, like, and it was quite difficult. Morocco, which has the best choreography, has best tifo has probably some of the best like the big like in terms of numbers and organization on the day and in terms of songwriting which is north africa has incredible poetic songwriting tradition against injustice with these wonderful long six minute songs that get sung 
know, Raj Casablanca and 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 song and places like that. And Algeria as well, and Egypt before the ultras got banned. So, and, and you know, again, I turn up there, and they don't want they don't. I literally turn up for an interview, and they they just change their mind, and that's it. So, yeah, it was. I kind of had an idea of the direction it was going in, but I didn't know which what would happen when I got there. And in many cases, I didn't even know if they would a lot of times would want to speak to me. So, yeah, it was kind of trial and error, luck, and I suppose kind of rolling the dice and take taking your chances with maybe a 60-40 chance in one place something might happen, 90-10 chance, 10-90 chance it might happen or not. So, and then, yeah, the, the finished result was was the book. And in terms of kind of the access I got and the kind of people I spoke to and stories, I, I, you know, I was quite happy with how it how it ended up in the end. Mm. Well, what fascinated you about ultra culture before you started your journey for this book? They were ever present in, in football for me. And I liked them because they were secretive. I liked them because they were naughty to not to sound like Danny Dyer. <laughs> um, you know, they, they, I liked them because they were outsiders essentially. And a lot of the times the politics of ultras can be extremely, I mean, can, can, it, it is, it is an extreme range, right? I mean, you don't really have centrist ultras, you know, they're usually on the right, usually on the far right, but a lot of times can be on the left or the far left as well. And I like the idea of these outsiders who played this pivotal role in the game, you know, in terms of how it looked, how it sounded, uh, sometimes how it's even organized, especially if you look at the kind of ultra culture in Italy in the 80s and 90s, um, German ultra culture today, you know, the, 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 it's fan power. And it's something that in England that is long gone, the idea of fans having any kind of say in running you know, the, the upper echelons of English football is, is dead. I mean, we're just customers. And here you have this culture that did have some kind of, it wasn't mindless violence. It wasn't, um, I mean, sometimes it is mindless violence, but it wasn't just mindless violence. You know, it was, there was a, there was some kind of ethos there, an anti-establishment ethos that always chimed with me. Um, you know, from growing up, I mean, I had a, had, had you know, I mean, I, I frequently in trouble with the police i'd go and watch west ham on the north bank I was probably too young really i think my mum and dad let me go when i was like 12 and i'd go on my own and and it, you know it, it, i was always attracted to that danger of it and i i guess for some reason I, I guess if if i went to a psychologist or a psychotherapist or something they'd probably tell me that i chose a career to kind of recapture that buzz that i had when i was kind of 12 years old and the danger and maybe there's some truth in that and so, yeah, they, they had always fascinated me. And the fact that they, like, they were just there in plain sight and yet no one, no one really knows anything about them. Well, no one in, has ever really tried to explain it to a kind of layman audience, right? Which also means that ultras can be dismissed easier by the mainstream media. And so, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to kind of tell, tell a story that wasn't, I and mean, it's quite difficult not to be sensationalist sometimes because, I mean, a lot of the stuff was sensational and it was, you know, it is what it, you know, they, you know, there's, I go and meet Diabolic, the Lazio, Ineducible Capo, who, you know, I mean, he's a fascist. You know, he's, mm. they give him a Roman salute and I walk in the room. He's got a picture of Mussolini next to his desk. He kind of goes on an anti-Semitic racist diatribe. Um, you know, he gets shot in the head three months later because he's involved in organized crime. I mean, it's, you know, there's, those are facts I and mean, you can't really embellish them any more than, than that. So, but it, but it is telling the truth, the unvarnished truth, but also showing that for all of the faults which regularly get brought up with the ultra culture, it is also this almost kind of unique project of global activism 
and like a global art project almost kind of rolled into one and trying to get that message across was really important to me i thought i mean there, there are many sort of shades of gray or many many sort of areas here that sort of uh, yes you can dismiss them as you know anti-semites and racists and all that especially Lazio's ultras but when you look at what ultras do for the local societies well in places like italy where many of the groups are on the right on the right wing but they are sort of very activist after you know earthquakes they're helping people they're really out there in the community and doing a lot of good as well aren't they yeah, so, I mean, this is the other thing that I think a lot of people were surprised about when I started writing about this, and and uh, especially in the book, is that there is, especially, I mean, in Italy it fits particularly, because, I mean, you have this idea of Campinlismo, right, which is like mm. the idea that you are, like, Italy's a fairly new state, and for, for centuries it was warring city-states. So the idea of, you know, let's, let's make Italy, now let's make Italians, is a very, you know, the idea of a unified Italy is still quite a... Um, you know, you can still see that there are there are fissures and divisions between regions. So people uh, gravitate to their bell tower, the idea that you, you have more um, love for your city and, and your region than you do for the state. And that brings with it, with and that, you know, really is evident in ultra culture, but it was, it's also evident in the kind of, with that love of your your uh, locality, you're also, you're also advocating for it and you're also um, helping in times of trouble. So, one of the best groups that I came across for this was, you know, the Ultras of Atalanta in Bergamo, who, you know, it's a one, it's a one, I mean, there's, there's, there are a few smaller clubs, but it's essentially a one club city. And, you know, they, in terms of the way that like Il Boccia, the guy who has been banned from the stadiums for almost two decades now, <laughs> but, you know, he's this folk hero there because of the kind of social role that uh, the Ultras have played there. They run this, there's like a yearly festival that they run, which has become like the biggest tourist thing in Bergamo. I mean, apart from the ski season, of course, later on, but like in the summer, um, you have when, you know, obviously Bergamo, uh, Bergamo was the epicenter of the kind of the first big European outbreak of COVID and the ultras, you know, they had played a big role in building a, a field hospital there for, for, for the people who are sick. So there, there's this, there is a, there is a, there is a very strong sense that, um, in times of crisis, and often I found this in places like Greece, uh, Croatia, in the Balkans in particular, Turkey, that in times of crisis, a lot of the times the first responders, the first volunteer first responders were often ultra groups because they're highly organized, motivated young men who who often who can kind of help out in, you know, if you if you need to move rubble from a children's hospital, which is what happened when the bad blue boys of Dinamo Zagreb uh, turned up at a hospital because there's a big earthquake in Zagreb during the first weeks of the pandemic. Um, you know, they're, they're organised, they're, they're in pretty good shape because they, you know, a lot of them are involved in organised fights and, you know, the, they can help out. So there is this, there is a, there is a, there is a kind of a social network um, and that, that is uniform, I think, across, across the left and right. Um, I mean, when you look at what, German ultras in particular have been doing during the pandemic blood bank drives, food banks, uh, setting up food banks, uh, collecting PPE, helping out the community. I mean, I remember I was listening back to some of my old radio recordings I did, and you know, there's you know, the ultra St. Pauli, um, how they were helping out refugees who turned up at a refugee camp there by by 
trying to break down their isolation. Um, and, you know, a lot of these guys, you know, men and women who come from Syria, who'd been kind of really had a lot of psychological issues because of what they'd seen in the war, a lot of them victims of torture and, you know, uh, seen some horrific things, you know, were being taken uh, were being picked up by a bus that was arranged by Ultrasank poorly, taken to games, given tickets, you know, and, you know, given a day out where they felt they were part of a community and not just in a remote refugee camp. And so uh, these are things that if you ask a normal person about ultras, they would just think they are a synonym of hooligans, that that's what they do, just turn up, banners, sing, fight. And there is that element to it, but there is this other element that, has been woefully underreported, and um, mm. you know that's part partly what the book wanted to do is to kind of correct that. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've read Robert Klaus's work in on, on German fans. Um, he's obviously um, he's he's been doing research on this on hooligans in particular for many many years now. And what what his work actually shows there is a lot of sort of blurry lines here, aren't there? Because some hooligan groups, they get involved into pyrotechnics, into TIFOs, whilst other ultra groups, they don't shy away from setting up fights against other groups. And then again, there are members of uh, members uh, of both themes that are sort of interchangeable. You find them in both places. And then there are a whole host of other subcultures that are connected to both hooligans and ultras. So after having traveled the world in search of an answer of what ultras are and what ultra culture is, how would you define it? Well, this is the thing. This is the question I asked everybody. And I got a different answer to everyone, everyone right? So, I mean, the, 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 I think there's, there's, there is quite a distinct group between, a difference between hooligan firms and ultra groups. And, and in Germany in particular, that is very defined, right? Because the hooligan firms have their roots pretty much in how um, in the, the the violence and the hooliganism that kind of emerged in the seventies and eighties in German football, much like it does in English football, right? And that has definitely moved in towards the arranged fighting scene, you know, the collar footballer stuff, because they call it in Poland. That's moved more into into that area. Kind of ultra culture in Germany is very much kind of, almost kind of middle class thing that comes in the beginning of the two thousands that that is focused primarily on on art almost. And then becomes very uh, activist and political because, you know, German football is set up almost to be that way because it is owned by the fans or 50, you know, 50 plus one gives so much power to the fans that those issues, can, it's kind of snowballed from very minor issues that, that affect the curve at each individual club to wider issues of, you know, I mean, 50 plus one is quite a big white. I mean, it's quite a complex issue for people to be, kept, to be campaigning on. So there is a, there is a, there is a difference between those two. And the further East you go, the more those lines get blurred. So, you know, by the time you get to Poland and you go to Wisłach Krakow, for instance, you know, you know, is there a difference between the sharks and, you know, the groups that are doing the TIFO, they, they, they become much, much more mixed until you get to Russia where the, you can't tell the difference between them anymore. <laughs> so there is a big difference. And I mean, Robert Klaus's work, I mean, I've, I interviewed him actually because I mean, he doesn't, he hasn't anything translated into English yet. So and I can't read German. So, but he, he does some great work and his latest book is about, which I want to read, but about how kind of the far right is infiltrating MMA or using MMA. And, yeah, right. and you can see that with the firms and with the far right. And you can see when you go to these, and I went to one in, in Sweden, which is quite an apolitical scene, but you can see how 
recruitment and the the kind of focus on a, of a lot of far right groups is moving away from football and and really focusing on MMA and this is almost like an MMA subculture on the edge of football. You know, a lot of the times I came across firms that didn't weren't even attached to a football <laughs> club that existed anymore. Like this was all that existed. Mm. I think it was a is it CSKA in Kiev like has gone out of business years ago, but they still have a firm that fights which which I found which I found fascinating you know that that's the last institutional memory of that club is effectively a group of like 20 25 men who train and fight other firms in Ukraine and the rest of you what what I find utterly fascinating about this culture as well is that I mean you have this sort of cultural stereotypical image of a hooligan who is uh, beer swilling you know not very nice person but but then again these fighters they are actually very concerned about what they eat yeah, many of them are vegan. I mean, who would? I mean, all of these things that come that come to light in in your book and uh, Robert Klaus's work, they are really fascinating because there doesn't doesn't seem to be an awful lot of that seeping into the mainstream media, is there? No, and there's. I mean, one of the things I point out in the book is that is the 2016 European Championships in Marseille when Russian fans attacked. Mm. I mean, Russia essentially a kind of you know, hand-picked group of Russian ultras, you know, destroyed the travelling British support, right? And that that's a really pivotal moment because up until then, I mean, it, I mean, people had known for a while, but because of the way that English football has been policed and English fan culture has been controlled really since Hillsborough, which was a massive wake-up call for, for English society. And, you know, although it wasn't, you know, Hillsborough wasn't about hooliganism, it was about, I mean, it was about the police, the police caused Hillsborough. And, but what it did was it brought in a new era of basically getting rid of the dilapidated stadiums, a gentrification of the game, basically made it, it made it a middle-class sport where a lot of people couldn't really afford to go and watch it anymore. And so it completely changed it. And it, and it changed the balance of power now so that the police can pretty much do whatever they want on the way to the stadium, in the stadium, on the way back from the stadium. So no, like, fan indigenous kind of fan culture can really exist or have any kind of kind of power whatsoever so that was it so this is the point i'm trying to get to so the point is that that uh, you know the 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 perception right through films music punk was that like you know that this bit like british hooliganism right this was like the hardest and this is something to be aspired to and groups around the world could have been inspired by it. And they're still inspired by it through films like Green Street Hooligans. But the thing is, that doesn't really exist anymore. And that was brought into sharp relief in 2016 in Marseille, where you basically had the same generation of people that were fighting at Italia 90, were there 16 years later, just double the size with less hair. <laughs> and, you know, they, they, they were in terrible shape against essentially people who looked like they'd been training in an army. And that is the modern kind of hooligan today is somebody who doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, might take steroids. I mean, it's not like it's something where you're going to get drug tested. The the only the only drug that I came across that people would admit to taking would be marijuana or cocaine. So something with low, low in calories, basically. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> so you know, and, and it, is, it is hard work. The training that goes into it is, you know, it's, you've got to dedicate yourself to, to daily training and you've got, you know, so now the, the, the old kind of urban warfare of, you know, alcohol fueled urban warfare that defined English British hooliganism has been completely replaced by extraordinarily professional 
and very dangerous mm. trained kind of fighters who, as we saw in, in Marseille and continue to see at protests, um, whether in Poland or in Germany or in Holland recently, you know, c- can be a very strong, or, or I mean, even in Ukraine during the revolution there, you know, they're a very, very strong constituency of people that can, you know, are, are, are quite frightening and can um, can win a fight against the police. Mm, indeed. Um, I mean, the drug use makes sense. I mean, the cocaine gets you going and the, the marijuana gets you, <laughs> relaxes you afterwards. You mentioned Ukraine there. I mean, you went to that place and you, you talked to some, uh, some ultras there. Or, you know, as you said, they're sort of a mixture between ultras and hooligans. Um, what was it like getting access to these guys? Because they, they seem to be a, a really a mix of just about violence, politics, just about everything that you, you could imagine. Yeah, it, it was, I mean, it was completely by luck that I met, for instance, Sergei Filimanov, who was the, the kind of main man at one of Dinamo Kiev's firms, um, you know, very accomplished fighter in the scene. But it turned out that I was meeting him as he was kind of embarking on a political career. So he had a, he had some kind of skin in the game of talking to the media. So he was open to talking to me because I mean, he has to, I mean, he has to get elected, right? So, or, or that was the plan that he would one day get elected as part of the national corps, which was this kind of far right. Or I mean, yeah, I mean, far right um, political group that was connected to Azov, which was the Azov battalion, which was a volunteer battalion, largely made up of ultras who had one of the few successes of the ukrainians fighting against the russians in the east of the country during the you know the post after the 2014 kind of maidan uprising so yeah and 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 i found that ukraine was was kind of a mess really because you know this is a country that is lost a huge amount of its territory it has been has had a revolution is scarred by the the theft and the looting of oligarchs and, you know, there's an ongoing war in the east of the country. And so the space, or the, the, the lines between patriotism, nationalism, fascism, and, you know, the, the, the necessity have all been blurred together. And it's very difficult to pick, pick that apart. And in Ukraine, talking to someone like Filimanov, who on the one hand has kind of restyled himself as a kind of someone who goes up against as an activist against... Uh, oligarchs who are looting the country, property developers who are destroying public places, someone who's a you know direct action, but would would campaign for justice for liberal activists who had been murdered for 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 revealing corruption, for instance. Then you turn around and his right hand man's got two swastikas tattooed behind his ear. You know, uh, he'd have a Schwarzenegger on his on his chest. Oh, did he have a Schwarzenegger? He had one like a rune. One of the rune kind of mm. there's some kind of Nordic thing which could be you know I mean I've got I've got very good at spotting number codes and and you know uh, tattoos which have fascist connotations which one of the I suppose you know if it was a pub quiz I'd be quite good at but I'm not sure if it'd be very useful other than that so yeah it was it was a it it was it was very blurred and it was very difficult to try to tell that story without glamorizing the far right. Um, without feeling like you're giving a platform to the far right, feel like you have, you know, to 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 also like explain that there is this, there is a grey area here that that you know that, that activists, liberal pro-European activists, are also kind of 
you know, they, they would defend these guys because they also were the people who went, ran headlong into the war against the Russians in the East. So it was a really, really complicated place, um, but a fascinating place. And I, I, I have no doubt that I'm going to see, you know, Filomanov again on on a front page. I mean, I, I remember when the book came out, somebody sent me a link and there's on Channel One in Russia, there's one of the main propagandist uh shows uh, evening shows had made uh, him the face of ukrainian fascism because of course in the russian media you know the the, the revolution in uh, you know against yanukovych was it was a, a cia funded color revolution by fascists right which is obviously completely nuts but he's the face of that you know he became the face of that on this show and he because they'd gone to hong kong to a load of these uh, dinmo kiev guys uh they said on holiday, but we're turning up at protest. <laughs> surprise, um, surprise. And so to them, <laughs> yeah, so to them, to the Russian media, this was like, this is proof that, you know, Ukrainian fascists were trying to export their fascist revolution to Hong Kong. And that's now a fascist revolution, you know, proof. So, yeah, you know, a lot of the guys that I've kind of interviewed uh, keep on popping up in kind of very interesting places. But yeah, Ukraine was the most complex, I think. And yeah, hardest to kind of navigate through without... Because at all points, I'm thinking in, in terms of journalistic integrity, in terms of how to write these stories in the right way, Ukraine, Ukraine was the hardest. But I, I, think, I think I just about managed to do it, but it was, it was difficult. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you when, when you look at the guy and what he stands for, there's, obviously there's a lot of good as well. I mean, yes, he has his right-wing man who has these swastikas and he has... Well, his beliefs, some of his beliefs are utterly disgusting. But on the other hand side, some of the stuff he does, you could agree with. So Yeah, yeah I, I it is could. that. But there's also the, 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 the issue that I struggled with was how much of this... Because, you know, he was an interesting character. Like, how much was it that, that this was something that maybe he might have believed in when he was younger? And then, you know, kind of maybe became more mainstream in his views over time. You can't really do anything about a tattoo once you've got it, right? Mm. I mean, you can have it removed, but I mean, you know, you know, and, and then how much that was it changed over time or how much was this mainstreaming using issues, which activists, you know, cause this is a well-known tactic of the far right, you know, finding common cause with uh, more moderate groups and then using that then to kind of mainline you know, fascist propaganda into the mainstream. And I think there is, you know, there is, there, there's still some questions about that. And, you know, I found that fascinating because I think if, I, if it was almost anybody else that I'd met in the scene, you know, and there are a few other people that I'd met that if I'd focused on them, I think that blurred line would be, I think, far less obvious. But with him, there was a, there was a feeling I got that there was a, I don't know, there was something else. There was something, there was some growth or change over time. You know, and, effect and effectively, in the end, he leaves behind, you know, the national corpse and moves on for his own kind of like, I don't know what it is. It's kind of like, a, it's called honours, kind of some, a firm meets a kind of graffiti group, meets, meets a kind of activist school where they're teaching people how to fight the police in riots. So, yeah, it's, it was a, you know, it was a, it, there was a lot of shade of grey with that. Germany, the 
country we've focused most of our time on, on this podcast. Um, you visited Germany. Um, can you can you tell us what you think is unique about German alter culture? I mean, you touched upon it a little bit in one of your previous answers. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, for me, German fan culture should be what every country in the world should be aiming for. I was incredibly impressed by it. I mean, I've, I've, for years I've been, I mean, obviously I wrote a book about kind of football ownership around the world, right? So the Billionaires Club is about, you know, billionaire owners coming in, bringing their baggage and using football for myriad different ways to try to either, you know, soft power, money, uh, money laundering sometimes, reputation laundering, which is far more, uh, far more popular. You know, it's a dirty, dirty business. And then you've got this and then it kind of like screeches to a halt in Germany. Which is like if you've got if you've got kind of a golf autocracy wants to buy a club, you know they can they can they can go around Europe and give buy a French club. Telling them no, no, just like this big black spot in Germany because of fifty plus one where it can't happen. I know that there you have Martin Kind, who I spoke to years ago when I did a story for CNN. Uh, I tried to talk to him for one three one two as well, but he didn't want to talk to me. <laughs> he's in a bit of trouble with his ultras. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, of course. I mean, he's this guy is the face is the evil face for ultras in Germany because he he you know he he wants to destroy the one thing that is kept some kind of fan power, but also has kept some. I know that it's difficult because Bayern Munich are just you know are, are so dominant in German football, but in terms of the experience, in terms of lower down having some kind of uh, competitive balance. You know, I think there'd be very, very few German fans that want to change that or feel that once you open the market, well, we, you know, we can compete. No, you open the market, what's going to happen? Bayern Munich would be even more powerful. So it's, uh, yeah, so for me, the fact that, you know, I, what I was most impressed by was the, you know, where I've gone to to Egypt and I've seen ultras play a role in the revolution. I've gone to Ukraine, I've seen... Ultras play a role in their revolution in Turkey. Ultras play a role in Gezi Park. In Germany, it's a kind of low-level activism, political activism, on a day-by-day, week-by-week basis, which is listened to, which is powerful, which actually makes a difference, which actually changes things. You know, They have to be listened to. And one of the most impressive groups I met was in Freiburg, where I met um, up with one of the ultra groups there. And, you know, there's... The connection between the club and this and ultras around the world, or certainly the hardcore ultras, kind of look at Germany a little bit like, you know, they're a bit. It's, this is a bit too organised. You know, this is a bit too clean. You, there's too much, too many connections with, you know, the owners and whatever. Like, you should be, you should be making demands to the owners, and they should be fearful of you, and that's why they give you money and tickets, like in Italy or Serbia or something like that. But there is a kind of, I don't know, there's a there's a practicality to German to the German model that means that. You know, when the 50 plus one thing came up for vote a couple of years ago, the Borussia Dortmund CEO says, look, I mean, of course I'm going to vote to keep it. That's what my members want. And they're, they're vote, you know, I, I, I'm voted out. And that's how it works. It's, it's democratic. There are flaws to it. There could be changes to it. I remember speaking to the guy, Yanni, who founded or one of the key founders of, of the unity of uh, Borussia Dortmund. And he told me, you know, we, we don't want 50 plus one. We want uh, 100, 100 plus zero. <laughs> so, you know, of course, it's an absolutist culture, right? As you expect that. And I quite, I mean, I quite like the idea. But in the meantime, in terms of med- kind of balancing the financial realities of world football and wanting to compete in Europe, right? Which 
you want your team to do. You ask any Eintracht Frankfurt ultra about their amazing season in Europa League. You want to be competitive, right? But with keeping the fans happy, keeping the atmosphere within the grounds, which is something obviously that we don't know if that's going to come back anytime soon. But having them as a key stakeholder in the game, I, f- I fucking hate the word stakeholder, but you know what I mean? Like having a key, uh, being, having a key role in the game, you know, I, I just think that it's, it's something that we've lost in England. I wish we had more of that. And it also um, guards against the kind of financial collapse that we see with clubs when they try to, when there's so much money, there's such inequality and people fly too close to the sun and they let anybody buy a club. And usually they're, they're not in it for the right reasons. 50 plus one is a, is a perfect antidote to that. So I was incredibly impressed and I enjoyed traveling around Germany, you know, I mean, apart from when I met the <laughs> ultras of Babelsberg, <laughs> when they, they kind of, they kind of uh, treated me like I was some kind of, proto-fascist but yeah apart from that but even that was kind of funny in a way so i mean i kind of enjoyed going to the game but the but yeah i i really enjoyed uh traveling around i mean great great to go to, to dortmund and you know visit leipzig and and freiburg's a beautiful place and i and i have a spe- i have a soft spot for freiburg as well because they have a, a very tight friendship with the akhlawi who were the ultras of al-akhli in egypt through uh, Amadou Fami, who's the founder of the Akhlawi, and uh, he died recently of cancer, unfortunately. And they, you know, they have this, they have big display in honor of him when he died, and now they're going to have a bench outside. And that, to me, that's that's a wonderful thing about ultra cultures that recognition, the friendships, of course, enemies as well. But there's a there's a kind of code of conduct which you know I think is I think is kind of lost in the modern world in a lot of places, and you know I think a lot of people can learn from that. Mm. I mean, not to be spoken about at all is probably the worst thing that can happen within ultra culture, isn't it? I mean, you can either be friends or enemies, but you know, to be indifferent—that's probably, <laughs> yeah, it's probably yeah. the worst thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, <laughs> you you mentioned the fifty plus one of the sort of um, power it gives to ultra groups and the influence that they, they yield over clubs in in that regard. But even without fifty plus one, when you went to Argentina, you found out that the Bauer Bravas they don't need that sort of rule to 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 wield an enormous amount of power over the clubs. Yeah, I, I mean, that's the thing. They don't. And the, um, I don't think you'd want to replicate that model anywhere in the world. I mean, the, I, quite interesting. I, when I lived in Serbia, I found a lot of similarities. with uh, Argentina, the people, the climate, they seem like such similar places. And, and weirdly, how their football is, you know, the football fan culture is kind of organised, is very similar. How the Badas Bravas kind of control the football clubs or, or have like a really big role and its connections to the edges of organized crime there as well is very similar to how it's kind of shaken down in in serbia as well i mean only a couple of days ago we had one of the main leaders of um of partisan belgrade's ultras who i mentioned in the book actually he's been arrested i i think apparently accused of murder but you know going to argentina you know that was that was probably alongside the Indonesia chapter where I kind of get chased by a group of guys with machetes. That like trying to interview Rafa De Zeo, um, who's kind of the head of La Dosa, Boca Junior's main main uh, main batter. Uh, that was probably one of the most frightening things I've ever done because I mean you really felt that you were that, that's almost into... seemed like a bit like an agent story. Like you had that cover story <laughs> if you want to tell that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it, it was. 
I mean, if you wanted to, I suppose it would be quite. I mean, I often get I often get accused of being MI6 um, <laughs> because it's like, what the fuck are you doing here, writing about like I, I was in northern Iraq in like 2007. It's like, what the fuck are you doing here, writing about football? There's a war. A hundred people died in Baghdad today. Why? It was like, you know, it didn't like people were like, why are you here asking like somebody from Hezbollah about the football club? <laughs> <laughs> like. Um, so yeah, it does happen quite a bit, but yeah, the, uh, yeah, it was amazing watching how they had it kind of infiltrated every aspect of, uh, I think it wasn't that they infiltrated it. I think what it is, is that powerful people realize that it's a constituency that would help them to control and having an organized group of young men, almost like an army that you can call on to, you know, uh, break up rival protests to kind of, you know, smash up like an, an opponent, whether that's a political opponent or a footballing opponent. But like some, like having your own private militia basically is, you know, is worth having. But to, to have that, you need to pay handsomely for it. And so these political contributions, as one of the member or kind of former members of, of Ladassa told me, you know, they can, they can, you know, this is millions of dollars we're talking about every year the trade around the ground that's controlled by them. Um, and you can see that as well with the Italian ultras. And, and again, this connection between Italy and, and Argentina is quite strong because, uh, and Genoa in particular, because essentially, I think it's something like 60% of Argentinians can have some kind of Italian lineage. La Boca, the district that Boca Juniors is from, is, is you know, a huge Italian influence for people who come from Genoa. So, and it's quite interesting that, that these two kind of rival football cultures, which are very, very similar, but separate, uh, kind of, you know, develop separately, but end up being incredibly similar. And I find that really, uh, like, there's, there's, there's probably a much deeper book to be written by someone much cleverer than me about the kind of sociology of that or kind of like, what, you know, what that means. But yeah. It, oh, you can attack that from so many angles. Yeah. You can sort of look at it from so many angles. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's really sort of a topic that you could just spin on for page yeah. after page after page. Yeah, That's- you know, and it, it, it's it, so yeah, it was quite a yeah, it was quite a frightening place to to, to, to find myself in. <laughs> but weirdly, it's kind of a lot of the times with ultras, especially it was like once somebody knew your name. Right. Or somebody could vouch for you. Then suddenly like, all the doors are open and, and you know, you, you, you're a trusted guy. And if you weren't a trusted guy, then you'd be thrown out in the street. So it was often once you got to that person, they were like, they were nice as pie. It was really nice. You know, they were really friendly. Right. So it was everybody around him, these kind of like concentric circles of, of security that protect them. But once you got through to got to them, you know, they're, they're pretty nice. Like Rafa de was was really kind of relaxed, friendly open spoke about everything i mean i didn't ask him about the war <laughs> with his his lieutenant i was told not to not by them but by mikhail who's like my swedish kind of guide in in argentina and in sweden later uh, and i didn't want to upset him because he, he was really kind of stressed about it so yeah you know so it was the same with you know diabolic in in italy when when once we sat down you know up to that point every it was like you know, it was days and hours of making sure that I wasn't someone I, I said, I, I, you know, to say that I, I was who I said I was. And then as soon as we sat down, he rolls a joint and passes it to me. Like, right, what do you talk about? Do you want to talk about the violence? You know, just you know, straight into it, you know. 
I mean, he was one of those characters. I I seem to remember who said, "Yeah, football. I don't really care that much about football." That that too is one of one of those things that struck me. That sort of was, uh, you know, you had that several places in the book that many of the, these men they were sort of like, "Yeah, I I enjoyed this or that, but the football, yeah, I don't I don't care too much about that really." Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't that much of a surprise. I, I'd been aware that I mean, especially living in Serbia, right? I mean. Who was, I mean, often who was kind of at the top of, of a lot of the firms and a lot of the ultra groups, you know, now were, it was extremely political. I mean, they were there either with the tacit consent or the explicit consent of, you know, the people in power because it it, it was expedient to do that. So it, the idea that, you know, and even to the point where with a lot of the people who are now involved in the upper echelons of the ultras at Partizan Belgrade, you know, there's guys who had previously been standing in the North Stand watching Zvezda, which is unthinkable in Serbia that that kind of thing would happen. But it does show you that it, that it wasn't, you know, for for people at the, at the sharp end of the power and the money and uh, whatever else the benefits are of, of controlling or having some kind of influence over this group or them having influence over you... You know, at the at the sharp end, it wasn't about football at all, and so it, it wasn't that surprising. But it, it was still what it made. What was clear to me was that what ultras provide necessarily isn't just about football. For, for, for the rank and file, it is absolutely about obsession and your team, your bell tower. You know, against others, like you know the the the, the army of the, of your team of your city. Absolutely. But for others, it's about um, belonging. It's about having a sense of identity and it's about a sense of place that's local, which is which is kind of lost in a globalized world. Like what the other I, I remember talking about oh, this is the biggest youth culture in the world until somebody told me, reminded me about online gaming. And of course, you've got these massive world, uh, you know, massive multiplayer universes where people are in. But what do you have that's a physical place where that can manifest a kind of identity and a belonging and uh, identity uh, in a very visceral way? And ultras still provide that in a, in a kind of secretive environment, which is almost impossible now to have because of technology in the 21st century, yet they still have a semblance of it. Mm. So, yeah, it was kind of it was kind of interesting, but not that surprising that people were there because they had found the gang and it could have been a gang about heavy metal. It could have been a gang about um, drug gang. It could have been, it could have been any kind of gang. It just happened to be that the gang they found, found a home, found a place where they could either be successful or they liked it was, was ultras. Mm. One, one question I have to ask you is, um, well, many of our listeners are from, from the United States and you visited uh, LA for, for that book. And, yeah, what what do you make about the ultra culture in the states? How is it is it different from from the ultra culture within Europe? I mean, the MLS it started in 1994, so you would expect that to be slightly different. Look, I mean, it, so I really enjoyed it, right? I mean, I'd spent two or three years kind of traveling around, like really intensely, especially in Eastern Europe. And I've got I've got Polish family. I'm half Polish. I'm you know I'm Polish British joint citizen. And, you know, I spent a lot of my time around people on, on the fringes of the far right or sometimes outright far right, around a lot of racism, a lot of ultra-nationalism. And it, it kind of became 
second nature to me, you know, second, like it's kind of, you know, you kind of always could brush it off. And then you go to somewhere like LAFC where you have extremely diverse group of ultras. I mean, they say they're ultras, but they're kind of a mixture of, because LA is a city of the future, right? It's everybody in the world lives in LA and there's a very strong Latin influence. And when you've got a strong Latin influence, you have a strong Latin football influence. So you had, you know, I met River Plate, you know, members of the River Plate Barrows who, you know, up sticks and moved to LA 10 years previously, Boca, you know, from Mexican uh, Barras as well, Colombian, you know. And so, you know, LA is a city that mixes it all together. And so the fan culture mixes it all together. And it was, and it's incredibly progressive. I mean, the time I was there, they were doing a big TIFO for LGBT awareness, right? So, I mean, I, and I, was, I was sitting there thinking with this rainbow smoke coming out, I was thinking, if they had this in Warsaw, I mean, there'd be a fucking riot. There'd be, I mean, there'd literally be, I reckon, I reckon there'd be two or three days of riots if you had like a Legia Warsaw suddenly did a, I mean, it just, it's unthinkable that you'd have that. And, and then here, here you have it. And that yet yeah, some of it, there's always this issue, like, what's plastic? Is it plastic? Right. And some of it is right. I mean, it's new. So it's got to start, I mean, it's got to start from somewhere, but some of it is new. It's in new stadiums. The, the people who run the franchise have a lot of say in what the fans do. So the the best I found is that you've got the, the league has to approve the pyro. So, <laughs> you know, you have league approved pyro, which is, you know, you know, I said, you know, that, that could almost be the, the headline <laughs> of it. But then you look at the good of the, the good that comes from it. You know, you think, well, there's a two way dialogue at least, you know, they could get, they could have like a discounted bar there, for instance, or they could ask for like there's a dialogue that doesn't happen in, in English football, which is incredibly commercialized like like this. The management of someone like LAFC are listening to the fans because they need them to make the product so to make it look like something they can sell to American audience. Right. So that's the reason. I mean, in, in England, they don't need to listen to anybody because TV revenue is so large that the fans you know, they just need to be there to be pictured and that's it. They don't need to be they're there to be seen and not heard effectively. And then what, you know, what I found very interesting was that, that because it's quite a middle class thing and that there is, it is a far more uh, liberal progressive culture across the board. So, you know, Antifa ultras are, you know, are a thing more, even more so than Germany. But w what's interesting is that everybody I spoke to, whether it's the New York Cosmos they're, they're kind of ultra group who, I mean, they're not in MLS, obviously, but they've got quite a very left-wing ultras group. And, you know, they're, they're in the community, feeding people, a lot of anti-fascist symbols. All these groups look to Germany. To them, Germany is the model. And the brilliant one brilliant thing I, I found when talking to the LAFC guys was that uh, they sent a lot of, when they set up the 3252, which is their group, was that they, they sent the kind of capos of the nine ultra groups that made up 3252 to, to Dortmund to meet the management of Borussia Dortmund and the unity refused to have them <laughs> refused to, to, you know, and, and the guy I was, I was interviewing was kind of a bit crestfallen by that. It's like, why do they want to, you know, we're like, we, we want to be like you. And it's like, they were like, no, don't speak to the Americans. The Americans is, this is just money and commercialization, which, you know, I understand. I mean, that's, that's how ultras are. Right. But um, what's going on there, I think is really, it was a really enjoyable experience and it was, you know, it was also one of the few times I've seen women in capo cages. And after seeing a very male, very patriarchal, quite violent, quite right wing 
seen, especially in Eastern Europe, seeing that, I thought, yeah, you, there is room for that. And, mm. you know, why not? I enjoyed that. And it was, there was space for it. And we'll see how it develops. But, um, and there's lots of big issues in MLS at the moment about both sides in fascism and Antifa, which is just mental because, you know, the, the Iron Front flag was was banned briefly and they're going to bring it back. But, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, they, they looked to St. Pauli and Borussia Dortmund and Germany. So that's, that's what is being built there is a, a facsimile of German fan culture, but one that is almost, almost purely progressive. Mm. I mean, what my last question is going to be about uh, where are we heading? Um, because I remember not too long ago, I went to a game in Hungary. And uh, when you want to go to Ferencváros, you have to register at the club office. You have to, you know, they take a picture of your retina. They uh, <laughs> take your fingerprints. You, feel, you almost feel like a criminal only for wanting to go to a football match. And you found that many places, don't you? That There was that sort of desire either by clubs themselves, by federations, or by authorities to sort of sanitize the game, get those elements out of the stadium. Yeah, because, I mean, look, they, they want to take back the power. They want to replicate the English model. All of them do. And, you know, turn it into a product that they can sell and make money off of. And so... This security, and it's the same with the Defidi in Italy, um, Paso League in Turkey. It's all ab all about the same, you know, uh, destroying this idea of no face, no name, destroying the anonymity in the stadium. And without that, the ultra movement is dead. It doesn't, it doesn't, it can't work. And, uh, you know, often, I mean, I remember uh, interviewing one of the main, well, a former uh, ultra from Roma, who's now uh, Contucci, Lorenzo Contucci, who's kind of a lawyer who goes around now like freeing other ultras who could have like get caught up in the system and um, you know he's like how can you be an ultra today there's just too much surveillance there's too much like why would you risk anything you could be seen so easily at least in the in the past there was a degree of anonymity and although it's still there is still some anonymity within the scene in terms of its visibility in the media you know we're we're moving into an era of kind of surveillance capitalism like facial recognition in particular um biometric testing like things that mean that like people will know where we are at all times you know and the amount of and the big thing of course is the advances in mass storage of data so all of this can be taken transcriptions I mean, we already saw it with Dietmar Hopp mm. uh, launching a, a defamation case uh, and the evidence that he was using was was by using kind sound of recordings and video recordings from from the sound recordings from microphones placed in the stadium that were directional yeah. and controllable. So the, the anonymity of football fans in the stadium is is disappearing. You, you're just struck by the fact that wouldn't Franco have loved something like that? Well, that's I mean, it. It it is, and and uh, look when I. My first journalism job was in Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates, right? And this is a this is a city that was a business city, it had no democracy whatsoever. Uh, essentially, you worked, uh, you could have a flashy apartment, but you didn't ask any questions. You know, freedom of speech didn't really exist. Uh, now it's one of the one of the most advanced cyber surveillance states in the world. You know, extremely strict social media laws where almost anything you can tweet would be considered a 10-year sentence because it somehow harms the royal family. 
And when I was living there, I always thought, do you know what? When the West works out what you can get away with, this is what they would want. This is what every country is going to want to build. And that's exactly what's happening. That the democratic institutions, free press, all being kind of eroded and being helped by the advent of the type of invasive technology, which I don't think we can control anymore. And, and in football, it's just, a, it's just a reflection of that. And so what I worried about is, I mean, a couple of years ago, um, Naomi Klein wrote a book about how, you know, about disaster capitalism, basically, about how uh, companies and governments and, uh, you know, f- factions within uh, governments use huge tragedies, uh, natural disasters, economic collapses to forward the next phase of the direction that they want their country to go in, uh, often to the detriment of, you know, democratic f- principles of principles of freedom. And I fear that this is something that's going to happen in football because of COVID. You know, that by the time the, the discussion in German football in particular about, you know, who who's who really has the power, like you had like Bayern Munich players coming off the pitch because they were, they were singing a song about the owner, you know, I mean, shows you that those players because i mean they're all extremely wealthy individuals see themselves more close to the billionaire owners of football clubs than they do to the working class middle class but let's say normal work like normal fans in german football and so it, it sort of sends a, sends a shilling message when a, only a few weeks prior to that you had a you had an incident in the dfb car where a player was abused racially from from the stands the rest yeah, didn't nothing. hear it say okay I'm, I'm not i'm not going with the uefa protocol and he actually sent out the player when he had sort of a had, you know had a, showed a bit of anger on the pitch and you know a few weeks later you have a billionaire owner insulted from the stands oh yes no we have to go with the UEFA protocol we have to take the teams off the pitch that tells you the direction that it's going in you know and yes, so it does. you know and and the idea that you started seeing more articles about like oh, this pernicious influence of the ultras and you know and and there's a real head of steam building up about like uh, trying to undermine this this powerful institution and then COVID happened. And so there's, this is going to be a new era of control within stadiums. Some of it is going to be very, going to be needed because I'm not sure what level of freedom we're going to have really in the next 10, 15 years, even to congregate in groups because COVID feels like it's going to be around. It's always going to be here. We could be inoculated. There might be, or sorry, vaccinated. There might be more like mutations to come. But rest assured that the people who want to control fans and the game will use the excuse to make sure they control it more. And, you know, we've got to be on our toes about it. Mm. What a cheery note to, to close out on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it, look, it's sunny outside today. So, well, I mean, actually, I, I mean, I don't know. Is it sunny where you are? Is it snowing? It, it's snowing. It's, it's minus 10. But, you know, it's it's it, it's, it's not windy. It's not windy. Okay. So you're ending it on a bad I'm all right. Um, I absolutely but, uh, look, If I had to live anywhere, I, if I had to live anywhere, I would live in Norway or Sweden because I love cold weather. Minus 10. I spent a bit of time in Finland a few years ago. And I, I really liked the winters there. I, I was once in Finland for the winter and that was in, in a place called Aulu, which uh, was close to the Baltic Sea. It was minus 30 degrees and windy. I mean, it was the worst weather conditions I've ever experienced. Yeah. Mike, give, give me minus 25 and sunny. 
Yeah, yeah. Kotokano and, and Finmog is, is, is the place for you. But before I let you go, please tell our listeners where they can find your work and where they can connect with you on social media. Uh, yeah, sure. Well, so 1312 Among the Ultras is out now. The hardback is out now. You can get it on Amazon, Waterstones in the UK, uh, and get it in the States. But the, the paperback version is out in March, on March 25th. And that's got an extra chapter detailing a story in Egypt, which is very close to my heart. Uh, there's also a German language version, which is out now, called Unter Ultras, <laughs> on, the, on the Spiegel, on the Spiegel uh, bestsellers list. Um, it snuck in at number 19 for one week, so now I can say it's been... I mean, that's a notoriously difficult list to get in on. That is... Well, I mean, I, I, I don't know anything about it other than it just... It, it was like... It's like the New York Times bestseller in. list, for only for Germany. It, it hopped in for one week, so, you know, it's... Uh, but yeah, so there's Unter Ultras is, is out now. Um, so you can get it in Germany, everywhere, I think. Are, are bookshops open in Germany right now? Um, I don't know. Uh, I haven't I haven't followed the... Uh, <laughs> there have been so many rules and so many, yeah. you know, uh, lockdowns and uh, sort of soft lockdowns and yeah. wave breaker lockdowns. You, you know, it's hard to keep track for over the country <laughs> what's going on. From those. And there's a Polish version that's going to be coming out uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks as well. So, And you can follow me on Twitter... Uh, James Piotr so that's James P-I-O-T-R James thanks a lot for coming on our show we truly appreciate it you're welcome this is it for another episode of Talking Football Extra the Bundesliga show your source for all things German football make sure to follow us on Twitter at Talking Foosball give us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the podcast until next time <laughs> <laughs>